Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in Lighthouse's workshops that hovers around a given theme. The draft happens once per eight-week session every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the draft 18.0 was Eclipse and featured memoirist James Downing, young adult writer Corey Ryan, novelist Colby Hansen, and playwright Peter Nemanoff. Tonight, we're going to hear from four readers. And I just, for those of you who are new here, this has never happened before. It's all boys tonight. Boys only. And um, I just want you to know we do not discriminate (laughs) against people who aren't boys. Yes? (laughs) Right. It's it's the hairy-chested draft, (laughs) (laughs) 18.0. Is that bad? That's your contribution? Can you, can you take that off? <laughs> okay, so we're going to jump right into it. I know this is fun, and I hate to cut it short, but um, we're going to get started. The first instructor who's going to introduce somebody he forced to come here and read tonight, who we're very glad he did, um, is not only an MFA of writing. He's got a PhD in writing. And he's about to get an MD in writing. writing. (laughs) First medical writer. Um, He's also very forgiving, because I think we've mispronounced his name for a year and a half. It's it's Richard Froud. Rhymes with Crowd. And I always thought of him as Dr. Freud. Um, But anyway, a fabulous instructor. I kind of hope he doesn't get into med school. Oh, did I say that? Um, But anyway, he is also a a talented instructor. I've just, I love reading his evals because there's just new language for how amazing he is. And you'll see for yourself, Mr. Richard Proud. Dr. Freud, my wife, the clinical psychologist, loves that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm here to introduce James Downing, who's been in my class three times, I think, so far, hopefully many more times to come. Because... James Downing is the dream workshop participant. He reads closely, generously, honestly, and thoroughly. He delivers succinct verbal responses in class and prepares extensive written responses for each submission. Now, by extensive, I mean he often includes tables, (laughs) charts, interpretations of the visible spectrum based on a memoir's fidelity to real remembered events. Which is all to say, you want this guy in your class. But I didn't nominate James on the strength of his critique alone. Oh, no. 
In the 10 months, 10 months since I've become familiar with his work, James has developed his narrative in increasingly impressive ways. He listens to feedback of other. He listens to the feedback of others as diligently as he dispenses his own suggestions. He has a natural ear for dialogue, a discerning feel for rhythm, and a sense of timing to prompt movements into rare linguistic territory that truly deepen rather than obfuscate the reader's experience. In James's prose, we are privileged to receive an unflinching look at his own life, to witness an identity unfold through events that are both of and out of this world. Please welcome James Downing. Garsh, thanks a lot. Uh, Richard is really an awesome instructor, so if you possibly can get into one of his classes, do so. It's such a wonderful honor for me to be here, really, two, in two ways. Obviously, I get to breathe the same air as all these wonderful writers. That's an inspiration. But uh, when I was a kid, I was uh, very dyslexic and uh, couldn't read at grade level till 12th grade. So I've kind of come around now. This is the dyslexics Disneyland right here, you know. Uh, so um, dyslexia, though... Um, does have some uses because I was telling some people about this place and I called it the Lighters Right House. <laughs> I kind of like the incendiary quality of that. See, marketing potential, you know, you've got these incandescent instructors, you've got this passion, burning passion for words, you've got this warm glow of the workshop. Are you getting this, Andrea? This is free material. So, <clears throat> anyway. I know, you can do better, so forget it. Uh, anyway, uh, enough with the one-liners. Let's get to the uh, material here. Uh, a little bit, I, I need to set this up a little bit, because uh, something of an unusual memoir. Um, when I was 70, in 1979, when I was 31, a buddy of mine invited me to go on a three-day madcap winter camping trip up to North Dakota to see a total eclipse. Uh, being a scientist, I was planning to observe it scientifically, rationally, and to um, take pictures. And that's the frame of mind I was in. However, when the thing started, it was completely unexpected. In fact, to summarize it in a few words, it was like I responded like a caveman would. So a lot of people have seen a partial eclipse, which is... A bar uh, barely an event. The the total eclipse is a billion times dimmer, so it's 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 light, and then all of a sudden, five minutes later, it's midnight. Stars come out, and you see this strange, hideous object, which is what the sun used to be. And for three or four minutes, it's total midnight dark, and then poof, it goes back to being light. So I was approaching it scientifically, and yet I had all these tremendous emotional reactions. So uh, at one time I was, I was feeling really dizzy. I felt like I was falling. Instead of floating, I was, I was falling. I had actual hallucinations where I didn't know what was real and what wasn't. So the, um, the eclipse started as suddenly as biblical judgment, and it ended with a trumpet blast of light. So... All of a sudden, here I was, 
And I was confused. I was bewildered. I didn't know what happened to me. So I made a promise that I would get to the bottom of this. And so just to summarize the whole thing, White Fire in a Dark Sky is the name of the book. It's a story of a scientific man who, by trying to understand his emotional and metaphysical reactions to an eclipse, rehabilitates his neglected spiritual life and rediscovers his hidden identity. So, of all the times I've read this, this will be the first time I've read the whole manuscript out loud. So, no, not really. (laughs) So I saw shock on people's faces, but oh well. So, I'm going to start with the, uh, this is the second day of driving up to North Dakota, and it's just before the eclipse happened, so it's the prelude. And I, I should mention, too, the other main event, which is that five days before the eclipse, I sat down with my wife of nine years, and we decided to go our separate ways. So the marriage had been gradually unraveling for some years. I, I didn't really understand what was going on. So all that was sort of a background of repressed emotion. And I didn't know till later that a lot of that emotion came out during the eclipse. And I, I was able to put that together later. Anyway, the second day's drive took us over endless miles of frozen prairie that had belonged to the Sioux a century before. Buffalo herds five miles long had grazed here, but the coming of the railroad meant the going of the buffalo. Now the ghost spirits of those shaggy Ice Age beasts, all neck and muscle with wild, dangerous eyes, roam only in Indian dreams. Rick and I, like Ice Age nomads, had come to bag a trophy too, not a woolly bison, but an eclipse. And we too were enjoying the happiness of the hunt. We lost our last radio station to static. With nothing to keep our mind occupied, I flipped through an astronomy magazine to check eclipse data. Beginning at 10.37 a.m., the eclipse would last 2 minutes and 43 seconds. Three planets should be visible, and with luck, we'd see the stars of the summer triangle, Altair, Vega, and Deneb. Being avid photographers with four SLR cameras, a video recorder, and a telescope, Rick and I had created a shooting schedule on a clipboard. I skimmed, to the, I skimmed the list to review our two dozen exposure times and f-stops. Satisfied, I settled in for a nap. My mind drifted back 10 years to the late 60s when love's optimism plunged Junie and me headlong into marriage. She, a a promising 19-year-old intellectual and I, at 22, had fled the bourgeois world of our parents like runaways, struggling, alienated, idealistic. We seemed so much alike then. We got married after her sophomore year at the University of Colorado. Now, a decade later, young love had ebbed and faded into memory along with football games and dollar night at the campus cinema. People change, or as Junie said, we were never much alike to begin with. She lived in the moment. I was a planner. I liked math and science. She loved literature and sociology. I didn't see a problem. With tolerance and understanding, differences between people can enrich a relationship rather than strain it. 
My best arguments failed, though. She decided to go her own way. I'd be left behind, cut adrift, abandoned. Somewhere in northeast Wyoming, late in the afternoon, snow tires humming mile after mile, I told Rick about Junie's decision to go, hoping he could provide some fresh insights. He could only shake his head and glance sidelong at me with a pained expression. I had no idea, he said, and shifted in his seat. Did you see a marriage counselor? I shook my head. I had wanted to. Junie had said that I idealized her, that the woman I loved was far different than the real woman she was inside. Love is more than obsessive attachment to another person. It's not the real me you love, she said. If I knew specifically what she wanted from me, I'd be willing to change and negotiate a new relationship. I cussed too much, lacked consideration, was too independent. A married bachelor, she'd said, and left messes everywhere. In short, the worst husband in the world. For the last six months, our marriage had become a joyless arrangement that didn't suit either one of us. To make a graceful exit, she'd applied to three graduate programs. By February, all three schools had accepted her. She had asked me to just let her go. Three days before the eclipse trip, I finally agreed. She'd be leaving for good at the end of the summer. On a practical level, Junie got me to my doctor appointments on time and knew about nutrition and kept me healthy. We both played guitars and liked singing together. Going back to the bachelor's life frightened me. I had no idea how to begin dating again at 31. What would I do without her? She was my sun and moon and stars. I'd soon be cast adrift without a north star to steady my course. Has she mailed in her acceptance form yet, Rick asked. No, not yet, I said. Rick bit his thumbnail. He hadn't seen anything wrong with the marriage. I'm so sorry, he said. Sorry for you. Sorry for us all. All along the highway, snowdrifts buried fence lines. The wind-sculpted landscape rolled out to the horizon like the surface of a motionless sea. Poet Carl Sandburg took songs and slogans from the prairie. Gray geese go 500 miles and back with the wind under their wings, honking their cry for a new home. For me, the prairie became a vast nothing, a metaphysical void. In the emptiness that ran forever, a broken-down homestead came into view, half-covered in snowdrifts. That grayed, abandoned farmhouse, once warmed by hearth fires and children's laughter, now stood silent and empty, the emblem of the high plains. Its coat of arms could have read, Abandonment, dereliction, failure. I wish I understood people as well as I understood chemistry, I said. I need a periodic table of the human heart. Yeah, Rick said, as he considered my words. And you're a people, too. Yeah, I said, looking out the frosty side window. I'm a people, too. We drove the next 30 miles in silence, except for the swish of wind rushing past the windows. The truck's bench seat felt hard and uncomfortable. The draft from the side window forced me to wear my jacket in the cab, roasting me on one side and freezing me on the other. I couldn't find a comfortable position. I felt a little better to have shared my unhappy news with Rick. Somehow I'd get through all this if I could be brave and keep my emotions from getting the best of me. About 6.30 that evening, with dusky lights streaking across the plains, Rick checked his watch. 16 hours from now, we'll be standing in the moon's shadow. Yep, I said without emotion. 
The time had come for me to set aside marital discord and bring my attention back to the trip. To lighten the mood, I read aloud from some tourist brochures we picked up at a gas stop. Harry Longabow did a two-year stretch in the territorial prison at Sundance, Wyoming, before he joined Butch Cassidy and the Hole in the Wall gang. That's why they call him the Sundance Kid. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, edited a newspaper in Aberdeen, South Dakota for a time. To amuse his children, he created fairy tales without the heartache. In his day, abandonment of homesteads drained away the vitality of the community. There's no place like home, Baum said, but apparently there was. For after a few windblown years on the prairie, he packed up and left for good, lured away to the Emerald City of Chicago. At 9.30 that road-weary evening, we crossed the wide Missouri and rolled into Williston, North Dakota, our eclipse viewing site, a town of 11,000 blizzard-tested survivors. When we settled into a motel room, Rick jumped into the shower and collapsed onto his bed while I rehearsed our sequence of down-to-the-second exposures. The 10 o'clock weather report looked bad, 70% chance of clouds at eclipse time. I went to bed worried about getting clouded out, The situation with Junie gnawed at me, too. If I'd been more understanding and considerate, she wouldn't be leaving. From time to time, I had raised my voice at her, and most recently, when she forgot to deposit her paycheck for the third time, and we bounced checks all over town. Remorse hounded me. I I couldn't help feeling ashamed of myself as a husband. When I yelled, she said, I sounded like her father. To her, worse than an unloving parent, he was a tyrant and a bully. Rick turned out the lamp, and in the semi-darkness, I looked at the sparkling, stuccoed ceiling. The divorce wasn't personal, Junie had said. She rejected the institution of marriage and the world that went with it. A house in the suburbs, kids, a dog, and a white picket fence. That life was not for her. I couldn't gauge her sincerity, though. Did she say that, just to be nice and duck an argument? Whenever she felt... Whatever she felt in her heart, she wouldn't elaborate. As a child, she'd heard her parents screaming at each other and vowed that as a wife, she'd never argue. Her definition of arguing included ordinary negotiation and back-and-forth probing about intentions and desires. I sighed in defeat. Whoever was at fault, if either of us was at fault, my days as a husband would soon run out. I rolled over and fluffed my pillow, churning with questions and broken dreams, great and small, and didn't fall asleep till after midnight. Thank you. Uh, just for the record, there is an eclipse coming up in 2017. Uh, you can't see it in Denver, but you can drive north to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, or anywhere on a diagonal from around Portland to around Savannah and it'll go across the country, 2017. So get your reservations now. Thank you, Jim. And I should say Lighthouse is not suggesting that you should leave your bourgeois life of marriage and suburban bliss before that next eclipse. But um, it seemed to work out. And Oh, did I mention there's a theme for the draft? And it is Eclipse. It's Eclipse. (laughs) And we were going to play It's Eclipse. 
we were going to play um, Bonnie Tyler because, yeah, it was either going to be One Hit Wonders or Eclipse. But anyway, that was beautiful, Jim. Thank you. Very, very beautiful. Um, so the next instructor who has drafted somebody is one of those people who I think is called to teaching because really teaching at Lighthouse is not very convenient for her at all, I don't think. Um, she does quite a drive to come here. And she even opened up a second section of her workshop because there was always this tremendous wait list, which those of you who know me know I get depressed about wait lists because that both means, you know, people aren't getting to get in who want to be here. And it also, I I think, has financial implications. (laughs) Um, So, um, but anyway, she opened up a second section. She seems to work like, I don't know, 80 hours a week on her two classes, or she's just really efficient. And she's a great writer herself. My daughter has read her books, and she's written books about writing that are amazing. Uh, Ms. Victoria Henley. So... um When I first met Corey Ryan, he made me laugh by referring to himself as old. And uh, I do remember being in my mid-30s and thinking I was old. Mm, That was a while back. Um, Anyway, I I guess he's he's got an excuse because he teaches English to high school freshmen. And (laughs) that's a, uh, in the Aurora public school system. So that's a path of service for sure. And when I think of writing and I think of Corey, I think of other writers who have broken new ground in content and style. I think about people all the way from Jane Austen to Harper Lee to Zora Neale Hurston to Toni Morrison to Barbara Kingsolver, Ernest Hemingway, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, Frank McCourt, people who really open new ground in writing and open the way for other writers to explore the territory that they have opened up. And we tend to forget that Once a territory has opened, we tend to forget that that ground ever needed to be broken. But the writers who break new ground in style and content really have to venture into the unknown. And all writers do that. Uh, I mean, what is the blank page and the blank screen but the unknown? But some writers do it on behalf of the rest of us. And I think that uh, Corey is one of those people. This, uh, this subject matter is, um, well, let me say just a couple of words about the YA genre. It has grown quite a bit. People like um, Lori House Anderson and Chris Crutcher and Walter Dean Myers have opened the way for this genre to begin really taking on some of the pain there is in growing up. And really, you know, what is more painful, more difficult than growing up? Maybe getting old. 
<laughs> um, so Corey is taking on some, some deeply uh, painful territory here, and I don't expect all of you to like it. I, I think maybe some of you will not like it, um, but I personally love it. And this is a scene, uh, it's very difficult when you're talking about an entire novel to pick one scene out of so many that are really excellent. So this scene we chose because it has, it can stand alone. And it's what, about 10 chapters in? Something like that? Yeah, 10 or 11 chapters into the book. Um, and it's through the eyes of a 16-year-old boy looking back at an incident that occurred when he was nine years old. All right. Um, so this is why a genre. So it has two vampires in love, and they're fighting at to death at the these games. I'm just kidding. It's, it's not about that at all. That was why Victoria got it. Of course, that's why she got it. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna read. I don't like talking much, and. Uh, Okay, I read, that's why I write, I guess, because I like talking. This chapter is called N.A. I took the notebook Maddie had given me. Maddie, you wanted to talk with you, Maddie, you wanted me to talk with you about what I remember happening on Wednesday, November 10th, the year we were in third grade, Miss Crawford's class, but I told you over and over again that I didn't want to talk about it. You even asked Hercules to ask me. The answer was still no. You left me alone for a few days with no mention of that day. Then you handed me this notebook with my name in the middle of the two black lines under the word composition. You asked me if I would write something, anything, to you about that day. I said, yes, I would. I did. This is what I wrote to you and for you. When Mom woke up, the school bus had already passed her house. She pulled a pair of black jeans and a red long shirt from the closet. On the front of the shirt, a drum set was outlined in black without anyone sitting behind the drums to play them. On the back, a pair of drumsticks in the shape of an X. She told me to hurry up and get dressed, comb my hair, and come and eat breakfast. Dad was driving me to school. Dad sat at the table drinking coffee. Some music played in the background. It sounded like the CD player was broken, like the music was punching and scraping at the speakers trying to get out, but it was no use. It was caught in some repetition, some cycle, the same three notes. Dad placed his book face down and walked to the cupboard and pulled out a box of Fruity Pebbles for me and poured some more coffee for himself and my mom. He asked me if I wanted any coffee, because he always asked that. I ate a bowl of cereal while Dad continued reading. I brushed my teeth with a red toothbrush and put on my red and black coat and black gloves, kissed Mom, and walked to the car with Dad. I forgot my hat. Dad told me that it was nice and warm in the school and I wouldn't be needing it, so hurry up and get in the car. I did. Driving, we listened to something more upbeat. Dad told me it was Arcade Fire. The name sounded scary. The music didn't sound scary. We pulled into the school parking lot behind a black car with a license plate that said, Proud Mom. Dad turned on the music and gave me a kiss. Have a good day at school, he said. I said I would. Gave him a kiss and shut the car door twice. My first attempt was too weak, and it didn't shut, so I opened it again. Said goodbye again and shut the door. Hard this time. I watched him drive away. He didn't look back. At least I don't think he did. Why would he? Miss Michelle, our student teacher, greeted me at the classroom door. She didn't complain that I was late, nor did she ask why I was late. She said, good morning, and I said, good morning back, and I sat down next to you, Maddie. But I'm sure you remember. Your hands waved in the air as you played air guitar and air drums. I looked down at my shirt, and we laughed. We continued reading Witches, Miss Michelle's favorite book. 
We all laughed every time she said, Witches, in a scary Transylvanian voice. She finished chapter six, the one where the witches are scratching their heads like they have lice, and the kid finally knows that they are witches, and the witches shut and chain the doors. I hope he got out okay. I never finished that book. Never will. As our reading for the day ended, Hercules walked in carrying a big toilet seat, his usual pass from the other teacher. He was in our room every day. Miss Crawford always met her. Sorry, that's funny. Pause. That's good. <clears throat> he was in a room every day. Miss Crawford always met Hercules at the door and sat with him at the table underneath the poster advertising the fantasy genre. She talked to him in a whisper that we that we could never hear. He was never disrespectful to Miss Crawford. In fact, he never said a word to anyone in our class. Only Miss Crawford. Miss Michelle continued teaching. Next on the agenda, handing back spelling tests. Remember her waiter routine, the one where she handed back her spelling test on this plastic silver platter? The one where she faked some sort of British accent? The one where she would ask us if we were ready to order, and we have to order what we thought our grade was? <laughs> May I take your order, sir? She'd say. Or madam to the girls. Yes, thank you, we would say. We had to say thank you. Uh, I would like an A, please. And she would let us know if she had that. If not, we had to order something else. Hopefully not enough. While she passed out papers, we copied new spelling words into our workbooks. Ten a week. First one, above. May didn't have a pencil that day. You were doing that motion with your hand like you were writing in the air, but you weren't writing because you can't write in the air, and you didn't have a pencil, and you didn't want Miss Michelle to notice because she always talked to us about being prepared in school. I didn't have an extra pencil. I was late and forgot my backpack. I felt bad about that, not giving you a pencil. You raised your hand and asked Miss Michelle for a pencil. She looked at you. The class was silent. I got one. Catch, Hercules said, as he tossed his yellow number two pencil underhand through the air, like our gym teacher pitched to us during baseball time, so we would never get hurt, and we would always hit it or catch it. You missed it, clapping your hands together like a seal, but I caught it. I was stunned. Not that I caught the pencil, but by the sound of his voice. Were you? I never heard him speak. His voice in my head sounded deep and angry and gravelly, maybe with even a mean-sounding accent. A voice like that would match his wide shoulders and his slight frown. Do you remember his voice, though? It was soft, gentle. There was that concern in his voice. Concern that you might get in trouble, and he was already in trouble, so he might as well just give you the pencil. Nice catch, Hercules said, smiling, looking right at me. That was the last thing I remember him saying. That was the last time I remember him smiling. Miss Crawford came and sat by him and gave him that mother to son, you better listen, even though I'm not speaking, look. I nodded to him and handed the pencil to you. Everything went back to normal for a minute. Vocabulary words and vocabulary tests. Second word, girl. Miss Michelle was serving up fresh vocabulary tests when the door flew open. Z, she said. May I take your order? The whole class laughed. Class, this is my brother, Miss Michelle said. Was that the last time I laughed? Third word, sometimes. Z stood there looking at something. He didn't laugh. He didn't move. Just kind of stood there like the laughter paralyzed him. Miss Michelle asked again, this time her accent fading by the end of the question. Z, may I take your or... He slowly pulled off his back, his backpack off his back. A gray one, Jansport. There was a small tear in the front and a stain on the upper left-hand corner of the small pocket. He unzipped it and looked directly at Miss Michelle. Miss Crawford patted Hercules on the shoulder and left her seat and walked over to Z, blocking her view of him 
and 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 you know he shot her one shot quick it didn't sound like the gunshots on tv it wasn't a loud bang or a bam or a snap or a boom but more of a short staccato crack that rang in my ears longer than i expected miss crawford stepped back backwards two and a half times and collapsed onto her back i looked at her her arms were wrapped around her stomach her shirt began to soak up the blood her eyes didn't close she was either staring at me or through me or into me or I was staring at her, or through her, and to her, but I couldn't tell which. I looked up at the spelling words because I couldn't look at Miss Crawford anymore. I began writing. Fourth word, mountains. As my pencil finished the bend in the letter S, I heard the scraping of chairs. I erased the S and wrote another S. A new, cleaner, better S. Screams. I never started the next word. Crack. Crack. I dropped my pencil on the floor and picked it up and set it on my spelling words and ran with everyone to the corner behind Miss Crawford's desk. Me, you, Juan, Stella, Frankie, Richard, Caroline, Brian, Merla, Stephen, Mike, Daniela, Gloria, Tim, Neil, John, Stephanie, Anna, Deshine, Judith, David, Ornella, Kent, and Jeffrey were climbing atop of each other. Frozen to his chair, Hercules sat waiting underneath the fantasy poster for Miss Crawford to come back. The poster said a fantasy is a story including elements that are impossible, such as talking animals or magical powers. I looked up and read it 29 times. I looked at Z. I watched him look at us, his face blank. Z, please, what are you doing? Miss Michelle said. She stood up from behind their desk. More cracks. Miss Michelle fell into a sitting position. She dropped the tray of our A's and B's and C's and D's and F next to her. The paper spread out like tiles leading us to the doorway. Her left eye closed first, and then her right eye. And then her head fell forward, and then Frankie got up. Ran. He didn't get far. Crack. Crack. I fell into my lap. His leg and his stomach were bleeding. A spiral notebook with a green cover that said, Glorious Spelling Words, lay on the floor next to me. I ripped some of the paper out and tried to clean and cover the bleeding that his clothes couldn't stop. The blood was like watered-down glue. There were little pieces of paper, confetti-like, all over the floor. All over the floor without a thing in the world to celebrate. Miss Crawford hated the mess spiral notebooks made. I picked up some pieces and sprinkled them on Frankie. The white of the paper remained white for less than a second. I ripped more paper and picked up more pieces and cleaned and covered up whatever I could, wounds or the floor. More cracks. Frankie started mumbling. His mouth moved. No words came out. He looked like he was about to cry. No tears came out. More kids tried to run. More cracks. Daniela fell next to me. More crying. It wasn't from Daniela, though. I ran out of paper. I even used the front and back cover. Not enough was covered and cleaned. Next to me, Neil was rocking back and forth, eyes closed, with his earphones stuck in his ears. Remember? Neil always got A's on his tests. I didn't own any earphones. I picked up a few not-so-bloody scraps of paper and stuck them in my ears. The crying was smothered just a bit. But I heard you, Maddie. I heard you. I couldn't let anyone see you like this. I grabbed the witches from the corner of Miss Crawford's desk. I ripped off some pages, wiped off your face, and put some on your arm. The ink made it worse. It blackened the side of your face and stained your shirt. I apologized. You shook your head. Maddie, you stopped crying for a minute and told me that fantasy was a story that included elements that were impossible. That this is a fantasy. This is a fantasy. This is fantasy because this was impossible. It was not happening. I didn't respond to you because I didn't know if you were talking to me. I wanted to tell you that this wasn't fantasy, though. No animals were talking, and if any of us had powers, we weren't using them. But I didn't tell you that. I didn't tell you anything. I handed you some more pages of The Witches. More kids ran around and more cracks cracked. Each time I heard a crack, I blinked my eyes. I blinked my eyes 22 times before I paused in my blinking. 23rd time, I blinked my blinking was interrupted by Code Red, Code Red, coming through the morning announcement speakers. The principal spoke fast and loud and clear, Code Red. 
We had practice code red. We forgot all our practice. Blink number 24. I heard the window, the door window smash. The blinds made this crumbled, tangled sound. Crack. Blink 25. Nothing. Silence. Frankie wasn't crying anymore. No one was. And Z was lying on the ground. His head rested on a pillow of his blood and his brains. Mass police in black uniforms with guns pointed at the carpet, as if they could shoot it all clean, came over to us and let us out the door. Some of us. We walked over our papers just out of reach of Miss Michelle's hand. I never told you this, but I always wanted to. You got an A. Thank you. Wow, that was amazing. Thank you. Um, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Victoria. Um, anyway, that phenomenal piece, and I won't try to, you know, whatever, dress it up. Um, the next person who is, is introducing is Ms. Joanna Ruoco, who is mind-boggling in her own talent. Um, she teaches the novel workshop for us, but also somehow amazingly uh, writes both genre romance novels and these really heady, artistic, beautiful literary um, pieces that that you can find in, in literary journals and in her books. Um, I don't know how she does it. She's just got a gigantic brain, I guess, and too much talent for, uh, for the rest of us. So, uh, Ms. Joanna. Hello. Uh, I'm here to introduce Colby Hansen, uh, who took my introduction to the novel workshop this spring. And I, I love teaching introduction to the novel because I get to work with writers that are at radically different stages in their writing process. A few of them come with novels that are uh, still existing in potential. They're still working with the, um, the germs of their ideas and with um, newly fledged uh, characters, first words. A few come with um, chapters or outlines or stories they've written in a particular uh, voice that um, they feel they haven't finished with or that hasn't finished with them, a voice that demands more pages. Uh, Colby came with uh, the fourth draft of a completed book. Uh, it's, it's a novel he wrote for his sixth grade students, and I think a few of them are actually here today. There they are. Yeah. Um, uh, Colby has spent a years working through this story. We're working the point of view, the tense, the structure, the voice, the language. He cares about this book. And his profound respect for and commitment to craft resonates in every detail. Reading his prose, I feel the way I do when I read the books that move me most. I feel less lonely because the text is there with me, bearing witness to the sorrow and the beauty of the world. 
Colby's novel is the story of Solomon Hesperday, a young boy in small-town Colorado whose friendship with aging lepidopterist Ethonia Brushfoot changes when a Mexican family moves in across the street. It's a book about loss and about forms of love we don't often see in fiction. And I, I actually have written down... Um, what the loss and the forms of love are, but I don't want to give away any spoilers, so you'll have to read the book. Uh, he, he wrote the book for children, and in doing so, he honors their complexity. There are no simplified emotions here, no stock answers, but rather a particular and poetic seeking, a compassionate engagement with questions of how to live and grow in relation to others without recourse to the comfort of absolutes. It was a privilege to work with Colby, and I'm very excited that you're going to get to hear him read tonight and that you're going to get to meet Solomon Hesperday yourselves. And so please welcome Colby Hansen. I wasn't able to admit to myself until very recently that I didn't want to finish the book, which is why I keep drafting and drafting, but it, it was time uh, to move on to a new project. Uh, but these are the first 2,000 words. So um, incidentally, just two things I wanted to mention really, really quickly is I've always been kind of a stickler for rules. And uh, so when I did, you know, when I knew that the theme was Eclipse, I wanted to go back and make sure that there was some kind of reference. And luckily, the moon is referenced once or twice. Um, but the reason I mentioned that is because initially when I, when I wrote this, there were, there were 34 kind of mini chapters with exactly 1,000 words per chapter because that was the only way I could find myself actually muddling through a process which was almost overwhelming. And it's evolved into something, you know, a little bit less rigid. Um, so when I say the first 2,000 words, that's an estimate. I think it's, it might be a little more, but it's the first two mini chapters. So the book is called Miller's, and the first mini chapter is also called Miller's. My father farmed in fields of prairie gold, and in the winter, between September sowing and the reaping in July, he worked the loud hot mills of eastern Dogbane County. He left us the summer I turned 10. That was three years ago. I still remember the last time I saw him, standing in my doorway after a long day at the mill. You left your light on, he said, tapping the wall, filling the room with the smells of combine exhaust and sunshine-baked flannel. He was covered in dust, like always. Miller sift flour onto everything they touch. My name is Solomon Hesperday. I live in a town called Echium, in the heart of Dogbane County, or the part of Colorado that is so flat and plain it might as well be Kansas. All around us grow big clumps of prairie cottonwoods and fields of winter wheat so tall people say the moon has trouble passing overhead, which is an exaggeration. Trust me on that. There is nothing spectacular about our winter wheat. Except, of course, that it is what killed my father. Each night he haunts my sleep, tapping the wall, soft clouds of glowing powdered wheat hovering around his silhouette in the doorway. You left your light on, he always says, until I open my eyes and lose him all over again. I stare at the ceiling, willing him to return. Outside my window I can hear cottonwoods whispering in the endless prairie breeze. Movement in their crowns casts headlong shadows around the room. My father's ghost, I know by now, is better than nothing at all. And then I hear it again. Tap. It is soft but insistent, the unmistakable sound of a fingertip on plaster. I spring upright, tangled in a net of threadbare sheets. Their cool, idle weight assures me I am awake. This time, it is not a dream. 
The pattern moves across the wall, feeling its way toward me, until a touch so faint I almost think I imagine it brushes across my face. I spill from my bed and fumble toward the door. My cheek feels damp where it has been touched. Pearl, I hiss, ricocheting through the dark toward my mother like a reckless moth to a flame. Her hair is twined with weeds and pulled back into a ponytail, like always. She is pushing on her glasses, saying, You're dreaming, Solomon. Messy ponytails and plastic black frame glasses. That's Pearl in a nutshell. But beneath the mess is a beauty so sincere I can't help but call her what I do. Pearl, that stunning priceless thing hidden inside the rough shell of an oyster. She spends most of her time between first seeding and first frost in the abandoned field behind our house, growing Colorado sweet corn. Pearl says it is the best thing going for us, besides each other, of course. She works the long, hot days of summer tending it, harvesting it, and finally selling it from a stand out on Highway 385, which does not make us rich. But there are enough people who buy Pearl Hesperday's fresh-picked Colorado sweet corn that she only has to pour coffee at the diner downtown two seasons a year. She's so busy with the crop all throughout the rest that she doesn't seem to have time to miss what's missing. It's him, I insist. Pearl pats the bed beside her. She squints at me through her glasses, examining my face. What's this? She asks. She wipes from my cheek a drop of something wet, something red. Blood? Without another word, she is gone. Dandelion parasols and strands of foxglove flutter in her wake. I can only hear her then, bowing the ancient floorboards in the hall and feeling desperately against the wall for a light switch. Tell him I miss him, I say. Of course, I know it isn't really him, but can you blame me for wishing it was? Pearl leads me back toward my room, pausing along the way to push her glasses back with her wrist, a habit she developed in the field to keep her lenses clean. During sweet corn season, Colorado dirt cakes her palms and fingertips like a second skin. I hear the tapping again as she ushers me in, now frenzied and urgent. I see it then, a single moth flapping uh, sloppily around the lamp in the corner of the room. Maconia, I say, disappointed, touching my cheek. Moth poop. If anyone would know, it is me. I am an expert on moths. Ordinary Colorado... Ordinary Colorado Millers are my specialty. It is just one thing that makes me different from everyone else at the Dogbane County Consolidated K-12. This is June, the month of the Miller. Every summer they swarm through Echium like a mottled, dusty windstorm. Most people hate them. I do not. For reasons obvious to no one but me, they remind me of my father. Because before I know it, they're gone, using the moon to guide them to the cool, wet mountains 200 miles in the distance. And me... I'm left rubbing my eyes, half asleep, wondering if I ever saw them at all. Millers, always leaving, always vanish so suddenly I never even have a chance to say goodbye. I hold a bowl of water beside the lamp, beneath its twisting, circular path. This is the safest way to catch a miller. Before long, it has flopped into the dish. I fish it back out, letting it cling to my finger as it shakes beaded droplets of water from its fragile wings. Pearl and I take it outside and set it free, into the leaves of a cottonwood that drops so much fluff each June it looks as if our lawn is covered in snow. I miss him too, she says, putting me back to bed. Dawn's damp chill creeps in through the window screen. But someday, something is going to fill the empty space he left behind. I settle back into a dreamless sleep, hoping it happens sooner than later. 
I rap on the screen door and press my forehead against the wire mesh to see inside. Through it, I can smell cold cream and coffee and hear the chatter of a cuckoo clock somewhere within the house. On the porch swing, a copy of the Echium Daily News is open to the obituary section. Athonia Brushfoot always starts her day by checking to see if she made it through the night. I wait while she begins the process of getting up from her spot at the kitchen table. She retrieves her cane from where it hooks over the back of her chair and limps the distance to the front door. When she sees me standing there, she smiles a half-smile and mumbles something ambiguous. You can't always tell what Athonia Brushfoot is saying. Sometimes it seems as if her tongue is stapled to the inside of her cheek. She suffered a stroke ten years back. One moment she was smoking a Pall Mall cigarette on her front porch, flicking burning ashes into the grass, and the next she was pitching over the rail, some little artery in her brain erupting like an overfilled water balloon. Only her left side survived the ordeal. Her right has been paralyzed ever since. The rubber tip of her cane meets the linoleum of the kitchen floor. I am patient, listening to her approach, the thump of her cane, the drag of her leg, the rasp of her breath. Thump, drag rasp. I squint through the screen. Athonia Brushfoot hobbles toward me on a path etched into the carpet like tire ruts on a dirt road. It is as if the line between heaven and earth has been drawn down the middle of her body, and after all this time, she still doesn't know which place she would rather be. Lucky for me, she cannot seem to leave Echium for good. Athonia Brushfoot is the closest thing to a real friend I have. I hold the door while she lurches across the threshold. Her destination is a porch swing dangling on chains from the eave. I steady it from behind while she lowers herself gracelessly into place. She makes room on the seat beside her, fishing in her apron pocket for a pack of Pall Mall cigarettes. I sit down. Athonia Brushfoot inhales a mouthful of smoke and blows it out through her nostrils. Hunting today, I ask. She considers this and shakes her head, a little to the left. It looks as if she is jostling water from her ear. She uses her good leg to push us back and forth on the porch swing. Not today, she says. It sounds like a sigh. We sit in silence, listening to the creak of the swing's chains until she says, let's get to work. She uses her cane to hoist herself up and limp across the porch to the front door. I follow closely behind, wondering how she will keep me busy today. I have been helping out around the house for as long as I can remember. Lithonia Brushfoot needs me for everything that requires more than one hand to do, and so I cut her grass and tie up bags of garbage and change pillowcases and open bottles of aspirin. In return, she helps me keep my mind off my father. I guess you could say I need her every bit as much as she needs me. There's a new killing jar, she says, holding open the door. She makes her way toward the kitchen. I pause to study the path she has worn into the carpet over the years. It is deeper on the right where her foot has dragged. Come on, she says, or Solomon. I glance around the room. Colorful clusters of admirals and tiny pygmies line the walls. They look so alive, I'm almost surprised they don't flutter away as I pass them by. Athonia Brushfoot is a lepidopterist. That is the one thing we have in common. But the biggest difference between us is this. She likes her butterflies best under glass inside a frame. And me? I think you know by now I do just about anything to keep my millers alive. I find it at the end of the shelf, a strong shoulder mason with a wide mouth and a gritty zinc lid. Quart size, pickles probably. The garage smells of stale palm moss smoke and poison. I hold my breath, like always, scanning the labels of the other jars as I walk slowly down the line. 
Most have been retired, their cyanide-soaked cakes of sawdust and plaster crumbling like old cement at the bottom. Athonia Brushfoot's old-fashioned, wobbly handwriting labels each one, permanent marker on a single strip of masking tape that is curled and yellowed into some stage of decay. Thirty-three jars, thirty-three ways to smother a butterfly. More than once I've been tempted to smash them to bits. Her workbench is littered with the tools of a butterfly hunter. Straight pins and scissors, tweezers, screwdrivers, rubber cement, glass magnifying lenses, a stack of empty shadowbox picture frames, totters above loose sheets of white tissue paper. A tiny Colorado hair streak lies still and suffocated inside the freshest of the killing jars, number 33, apricot baby food. All the rest she somehow manages to do on her own, sweeping her net through the wildflowers exploding in her butterfly garden out back, shaking her findings into one of her jars, leaving them inside just long enough to smother them dead. And don't even try to convince her it's inhumane. She'll just glare at you through her one good eye, muttering something ambiguous like, what's your hobby? Or try to stop me. You're out of poison, I tell her, twisting off the killing jar's lid. The smell of dill escapes from inside the glass. Athonia Brushfoot taps her palm all into an ashtray and watches me work. I plunge the jar into the sink basin and begin scrubbing. She exhales a mouthful of smoke and stabs out her cigarette butt. She does not answer immediately, but instead waits for me to finish cleaning the jar. I place it before her on the table. They remind me of when I was young, Solomon, she says at last. She leans in so close I can smell the smoke on her breath. I wasn't always like this. I watch as she affixes a strip of masking tape to the glass. She bites the cap off a permanent black marker and waits for me to steady the jar. I do it without being told. Then, in her unsteady, left-handed penmanship, she writes, Killing Jar Number 34. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, Gotta love those killing jars. Next up is a first for uh, a draft. A a few drafts ago, we had our first screenplay reading, and it was um, just a, a wild and crazy party. And I imagine under the tutelage of Mr. Terry Dodd, a similar thing is is awaiting us tonight. Um, Terry's he's got his hand in everybody's cookie jar. I think you read the you know you read the paper. Terry Dodd's directing this. He's written that. He's anything playwriting related or theater related. Terry's there. So um, we are thrilled that he's part of the Lighthouse faculty and his RFK show is is going right now. Just reopened. We still got him. We got him here. And RFK has just reopened. So maybe he'll tell us uh, for a second about that. Um, Mr. Terry Dodd. Oh, God. Um, This is a short screenplay as it was born. And you'll see the play in there. I'm looking at the light here if we need the light. Hit me with the light. Yeah. And then we'll bring the actors up. There are actors in the room. Nope, kill the spotlight. You're right on that. It's like, dear God. Um, you know what? No, that's fine. 
Uh, I think, Rick, you'll be fine on this. We'll set it up. Um, there's an old story I've got to say about actors years ago that true actors can always find their light. Always, always, always. The minute they're born, the story goes. The doctor sweeps them upside down, slaps their ass. They turn around, look at the doctor and say, don't you ever do that again to me, and you're standing in my light. (laughs) So the story goes. Anyway, um, Peter's writing, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Peter's uh, listening to the writing tonight when things pull into shape. There's a deceptive simpleness to Peter's writing and total eclipse of the heart it's not total but it's you'll see in this and I'm always amazed even as a writer and as a teacher that you see things when they happen it's it feels so clean and clear it's like how did they come to this like in the last few pieces you know and that's the beauty of the piece and you know watching Peter's writing very much when the actor's we ran through it just a few minutes before um, the event. I, I flashed on the movie Before Sunrise with uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. And there's a third one coming out, which is Before Midnight now. But I think there's, there's sort of a little gem of Before Sunrise in what we're about to see. And this was an exercise that was t- short films, 10 to 15 minutes, and they had to be set in Denver. That was the only rule. And there were some wonderful things that came out of it. There was a a murder mystery, comic murder mystery set in Wash Park with a writer on a deadline to which a neighbor was beating his drums, and so he went to great lengths to kill the neighbor. Um, There was um, a woman at the lunch wagon downtown who wanted to find a boyfriend that was unique to Colorado, so one of the cowboys on the horses... Uh, the statues came to life and came down that only she could see. And for Peters, it's called Arrivals and Departures, and we're at DIA with two people about to get on a flight. And again, there is just a wonderful, evocative, uh, lyrical quality to his writing, very much. And I think that will speak for itself when we get the actors. Guys, come on up here. Yes, who the actors? Ben, Megan, Rick will be reading the screen directions. So just imagine a short little piece. Okay, you okay? I'm fine. Cool. Good. And Michael? Arrivals and Departures by Peter Nemanoff. Interior, A Concourse, Denver International Airport. Bar, Morning. The bar is nearly empty, except for a couple of people eating breakfast. Airplane arrivals and departures can be heard in the background. A rolling suitcase is heard clicking against the floor. A young woman, dressed way too elegantly for her surroundings, rolls her suitcase up to the bar. She has on large sunglasses, a fur hat, a black dress, gloves on her hands, and her hair recently quaffed. She looks more like someone out of an Audrey Hepburn movie than someone at the Denver airport. This is Lola. Outside it is overcast. She sighs, not happy about this. As soon as she gets situated at the bar, a bartender comes over to take her order. The bartender quickly gives Lola a quick look over. 
Something to drink? Chardonnay. Can I see some ID? Yes. Lola takes out her wallet and produces her ID. The bartender looks down at the picture and back at her. Lola lowers her sunglasses and smiles at the bartender to prove it's really her. This action is lost in the bartender. I'll be right back. Thank you. Lola glances around the bar to take in her surroundings. Clearly, she is in the wrong place and decade. Above the bar are rapidly aging. Cri- <clears throat> Above the bar are rapidly aging Christmas decorations. The bartender returns with the drink. Would you like to see a food menu? No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, holler if you need anything. Okay. Lola looks down at the drink, hesitates, then drinks about half of it in a couple of quick gulps before taking a deep breath. It is the latest elegant thing, or it's the least elegant thing she has done so far. She composes herself. She holds her hand to indicate she would like another. Another rolling suitcase is heard. A young man pulls up to a bar stool a couple away from her and gets settled. He is dressed much more casually and looks like he is in a fog. This is Evan. The bartender brings Lola another glass of wine and goes to take Evan's order. Here you are, sweetheart. Thank you. Hey, what can I get for you, sir? <clears throat> Coors and a shot of whiskey. Two to two ounce? Tallest <clears throat> you have. Menu? No. And be right back. They sit in silence for a second, looking straight ahead. Lola gives him a quick glance, giving him the once over. He notices her. <laughs> He notices her in the corner of his eye and for the first time notices this strangely dressed person. He decides to ignore it. The bartender returns. Start a tab? Absolutely. He fishes out a credit card. Enjoy. He takes his shot of whiskey. He has no trouble with it. He goes right to work on his beer. Lola breaks the silence. I'm sorry. (laughs) Are you afraid of flying? No. (laughs) Why do you ask? One reason to be doing whiskey shots at 8.30 in the morning. No. Flying doesn't bother me. It's a bad trip. That bad? It could have gone better. How about you? I'm afraid of flying. (laughs) Where are you going? New Zealand. That's a long flight. (laughs) That's why I'm drinking wine. You know it's the safest form of travel. That doesn't make me feel better. Why not? Because if the plane goes down, I'd be embarrassed that I ended up a statistical error. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be completely safe. I'm not afraid of crashing. Then what? I hate turbulence. It's the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> it's unpleasant, but it's not that bad. I'd rather be stabbed by a dull knife, repeatedly. <laughs> Did you have a traumatic experience? Yes. The dancing clouds. 
the what class? <laughs> it's what my mom used to tell me as a kid whenever we hit turbulence. The clouds were just dancing around the plane, having a wonderful time. That's disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid clouds. Those personified clouds. <laughs> yes! How dare they foxtrot around my plane! Better than a gremlin on the side of the plane. <laughs> True. <laughs> Maybe that's the cause of your problem. No. I've always hated flying. Maybe you just don't fly enough. I grew up flying. You did? My whole family is back east. I've flown back and forth across this great land of ours more times than I can remember. So why New Zealand? To prove I can, and because of my friend. Does she live there? No. It's a kind of random place. <laughs> she really wants to go. A couple of years ago, she read about how beautiful it was, and they legalized gay marriage, and she was sold. Is she gay? <laughs> no, just progressive. <laughs> Is she a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings? Lola laughs. She didn't expect that. No? Why? The only other thing I know about me is that far away. It's supposed to be beautiful. My friend kept dragging me to bookstores to show me pictures and travel books. Pretty soon, I started to think New Zealand was amazing and beautiful, and not long after that, we started talking about actually traveling there for a trip, and here I am today, telling you. She takes another big gulp from her drink. Evan looks around, curious about something. Where is your friend? Los Angeles. She moved there for graduate school about a year ago. I'm meeting her at LAX during my layover. That's where I'm going. Lola gives Evan a little shove. He doesn't mind. Wave shit. Is that a response? Apparently. Are we on the same flight? They start digging through their stuff to get out their tickets and check. Are you on flight 84, boarding a nine? I am. We're on the same flight. That's amazing. Don't judge me if I freak out like a scaredy cat during takeoff. I won't. Good. So, what brought you to Denver? A girl. Oh. I'm sure there's a story behind that. There is. <clears throat> is it worth telling? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been to Denver before? My first time. Did you have fun? Honestly? I guess not. How long were you here? Two days. Long time, huh? Yeah, screw that. <laughs> the bartender comes over and checks their drink status. Another round? Yes. yes. <laughs> and another shot of whis- whiskey. Make that too. You got it. He prepares the drinks. Hi, I'm Lola. Evan. Nice to meet you, Evan. Same here, Lola. I figured if we're going to be drinking buddies, we might as well be properly introduced. A Chardonnay, a Coors, and two whiskey shots. Enjoy. 
Lola looks down at the brown liquid in front of her and grimaces. Well, cheers. To what? New connections. New connections. They drink. The alcohol begins to take effect. (laughs) This is much more fun with another person. (laughs) What? Getting drunk? Absolutely. I don't think I've ever gotten drunk this early in the morning before. I wasn't sure they would serve me. Mm, Why not? It's free country. That it is, but I was afraid of the judgment. Sometimes you just need a drink, regardless of the time. Well said. Cheers. Cheers. They drink. Do I have to ask? Yes, I mean. What's with the outfit? <laughs> Lola stands up to show off her outfit. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> a little unusual, but nice. <coughs> Thank you. You always dress that way? I like to keep it classy. <laughs> Wouldn't you get uncomfortable? I mean, you're in for a long flight. <laughs> I always dress up when I fly. Always? It's one of the few things I love about flying. Why? Flying is sexy. It's mysterious. It's anonymous. You can be anybody you want, have any image. So you like flying? It's a love-hate relationship. (laughs) I'd rather have a sexy image look than a nervous wreck. Evan thinks about it, takes a drink, looks down at his own clothes. I'm dressed like a slob. (laughs) What kind of image is that? I don't know. I talked to you, didn't I? The slob and the debutante. That's our title. Cheers. Cheers. The slob and the debutante together getting drunk. So tell me, Evan, if there was one thing you could have done in Denver, what would you have done? He thinks... Interior, airport, moving sidewalk, day. Lola and Evan roll their suitcases down the moving sidewalk at a slow pace. It may not exactly be hiking in the mountains, but you are walking with kind of a view of the mountains. It's a very close second to the real thing. (laughs) What did you do here? We went to the movies, Costco, <laughs> a lot of errands. I could have been back in California. You know, that's the modern world. All these chains are in all these cities, so it doesn't matter where you are. Errands? Who was this girl you were visiting? My ex-girlfriend. The first girl I ever lived with. The only girl I ever lived with. Oh. How did she end up here? She's from here. Uh, when we broke up... <clears throat> She got tired of Los Angeles and moved back. When was that? A year ago. There is a slight pause. Lola gives him a look to indicate he should keep speaking. (laughs) 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 At first we didn't speak, but then we started talking on the phone, and it was like old times, and she invited me out here. I thought we were going to get back together. 
But you don't live in the same city. I would have moved here. I could use a change. Really? What happened? She didn't want me. Why not? I don't know, but she didn't want me here. Whatever we had was over and she wanted me gone. How do you know? She kept telling me what she thought of me through her cat. <laughs> Excuse me? She says it's cat. she thought of me, she expressed through the cat. At first the cat was happy to see me, but then the cat was tired of me being in space and wanted me to leave. Stop laughing. Come on. That's what she said. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's time to move on. I needed this to move on, you know? Today is the first day of my new life. What was your name? Monica. The first day of your new life without Monica. This is a big step for me. How so? It was difficult to imagine life without Monica. Maybe that's why I came here. You really loved her. I don't know if I really loved her. I was just afraid of the alternative. Which was? Being alone. It terrifies me. Well, there are plenty of fish in the sea, as the saying goes. That's what they say, but it's not that easy sometimes. We met in college, where you're just pushed towards new people all the time. Since I graduated, it hasn't been like that. I wake up, go to work, get drinks with old friends, very routine. I haven't met a lot of people since I became an adult. <laughs> That's the adult world for you. I didn't want to be with Monica, you know? But I didn't want to be alone. You'll meet someone else. I already did. You did? You. Me? <laughs> I may never see you again after today, but the fact that you spoke to me at that bar gave me hope. She smiles at Evan. They step off the moving sidewalk. Evan walks towards the window. Lola follows. He looks out the window towards the mountains. The clouds are thick and heavy over the mountains. It is pretty here. Looks like it's going to snow. Sorry, I missed that. that Lola stares out the window, terrified. I don't want to go. Yes, you do. It'll be fun. I don't think I can do this. You don't have to go. Yes, I do. It is a free country. You can do what you want. Lola goes to sit down in a row of seats. It is empty except for her. Evan follows and sits next to her. Four years ago, I was supposed to go to Italy with my boyfriend at the time. It was going to be the experience that changed my life forever. We planned it for ages. 
And a week before the trip, I backed out. Why? I couldn't get on the plane. I was too terrified. Why didn't you drink? I was too young. This is before I drank or dressed up or any of that. <laughs> <laughs> that was before. This is now. I can't stand the idea of people thinking I'm a coward. Prove them wrong. I have to. Besides, my friend told me she'd strangle me to death with her bare hands if I backed out like last time. It'll be different this time. I'll be there to help you. Thanks. I just need to get over those mountains. That is my obstacle. If I can get past that first step, I know I will be okay. Evan gets up. He takes out his phone and checks the time. An announcement can be heard in the background. Southwest Flight 84 to Los Angeles is now boarding. We have to go. It's time. I see. She continues to sit. We have time for one more drink, if you want. (laughs) No, I'm drunk enough. He holds out his hand for her. Ready? I'll meet you over there. I have to call my friend real quick. I'm just going to use one of those pay phones. Evan holds out his cell phone. No, thank you. I like the payphone. It adds to my image. He hesitates. Don't worry. I'll be there. Interior, airport, gate, day. Evan stands in line to get on the plane. He watches Lola across the terminal sitting at a payphone. He watches her laugh and use her hands to express her feelings as she talks. She leans forward and laughs. She makes circles around the receiver with her hand. She crosses her legs. She nods her head and digs through her bag looking for something. She eventually pulls out a pen and a book and writes down something in the front cover. Interior. Airplane. Day. Evan sits in an empty row of seats at the window, alone. He looks out the window. His thought process is interrupted by someone clearing their throat. He looks up and sees Lola standing over him. Is this seat taken? It is now. Thanks. I didn't want to hold up the line. She puts her bag in the overhead compartment and sits down, unable to get comfortable. I didn't think you'd make it. Me either, but my friend told me she'd murder me if I skipped the flight. Just think of it as a tube-shaped bus. He closes the window. Lola looks ex- anxiously down the aisle. When does the drink cart come by? <laughs> he extends his hand to her, and she takes it. There's a loud ding sound. A voice comes on over the intercom. Flight attendants, please prepare for your departure. Here we go. Just promise me one thing. What? You'll send me a postcard. You got it. They both sit, looking straight ahead, hands clasped together, 
Lola with her eyes closed. The intercom voice comes back on. I would request your full attention as the flight attendants demonstrate the safety features of this aircraft. Neither of them look at the flight attendant. The plane starts to roll forward. Fade out. That was so awesome. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Peter. Um, Terry, you have to nominate somebody every single time now. Uh, let's give a, a hand to everybody who read tonight. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.